0: Let's pray one more time. I kind of got to get a hold of myself here. (laughs) Man, that was good. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for Christ. We're so thankful for your love for us. And even today, as we, we talk about the beginning of this week, where he sacrificed for us, I pray that our hearts would be drawn to him, that he would be lifted high, and that we would see him as he truly is. Change us from that that vision of Christ, Lord. That's our desire this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it pierces, divides our thoughts and our intentions. Tells us who we really are. That's what we ask this morning. Tell us who we are. Tell us who Christ is. We want nothing more, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, open up to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 is where we'll be. This morning, Matthew 21, and we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses together. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I when I read the Gospels, which I love to do, and uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time in the Gospels together over the next few years, uh, particularly the Gospel of Mark here in about a month, but sometimes when I read the Gospels, I I fail to pay attention closely to where Jesus is located geographically. You know, I just kind of read through, I read the stories, and I don't think and I don't notice these cues that the different gospel writers will give us about where Jesus is at. And let me just tell you, I know you know this, but place matters. It matters very much where Jesus is at. And so follow me for a second as we sort of trace the the big journey of Jesus through the gospel of Matthew. That won't take as long as it sounds. <laughs> Where was Jesus born? You know the answer to that. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and he was proclaimed to be a king when he was born there at his birth. And you you know this story from Matthew. The wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem to visit David or to visit Jesus there, the city of David, and they did that because of the predictions that they had read regarding a king who would be born, a king of the Jews. Well, even though Jesus was born as the rightful king of the Jews, he was unable to reign because a, we'll call him a pseudo-king, Herod, at that time was reigning over the land. He was sitting on the throne, and this pseudo-king was not very happy about this new king who was born, and so you know the story. He tried to kill Jesus, and he killed a lot of other baby boys in the process. So when that happened, King Jesus was quite literally exiled from his land into Egypt. His parents took him into Egypt. He made the journey there. He lived there for a while until Herod died, and then his parents brought him back, but they did not bring him back to the city of David, or to Jerusalem, the capital city. Instead, they took him to Galilee, to the region of Galilee, and specifically to Nazareth, and they they lived there, and he grew up there. Now, Jesus spends the vast majority of his ministry in the region of Galilee, away from Jerusalem, out of Jerusalem. But if you follow the trajectory closely, and if you read the Gospel of Matthew closely closely, looking for cues about where Jesus is and where he plans to go, you will see that Jerusalem plays an important role in his mission. If you look back to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, you can see that this is where they're they're in the north, Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks the disciples who he is, and Peter proclaims him to be the Messiah. And then this is Christ's response to Peter when Peter says that. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, many of the Jews were longing for a king. They were looking for a king, and they were expecting a particular kind of king. They were expecting a military leader. They were expecting a political leader who would rescue them from Roman oppression. And they were looking for a leader who would return Israel to its former political glory that the nation had under David and Solomon. And so from this time forward in Matthew 16... Jesus begins to proclaim that he he is going to be the king. He's been proclaiming that all along. But his kingship and his authority is going to take him back to Jerusalem. And he's going to fulfill his kingly mission by going to the capital city of Jerusalem. And the thing about his mission is that he's trying to tell the disciples here is that it's far different from those expectations. People expected a military and a political leader... And Jesus was saying, look, that's that's not what I am. That's not who I am. My mission looks far different than that. And as I go to Jerusalem, you're going to really understand what my mission is all about. Well, today is Palm Sunday. You know that. And we typically on Palm Sunday remember and consider Christ's triumphal entry into his capital city of Jerusalem. We think about that. And we also understand that only five days later, he dies on the cross, which to many people seemed like a dramatic turn of events from Palm Sunday and his triumphal entry into the city. Today, though, as we're looking at this triumphal entry in Matthew 21, I want you, I want us together to think specifically about how this entrance into the city is really weighted with with a description of who Christ is. It's it's weighted with significance regarding his person and his work. It's not just the fact that he entered the city and was going to fulfill his mission. It's the reality that as he entered the city, everything he did was weighted with significance and was important to who he is as the king and to descriptions of his kingship and his authority. This entrance into the city tells us a lot about Christ. And what his reign is going to look like as the king of Israel and ultimately as the king of all nations. And so we want to make sure as we enter into Passion Week and as we think this week about Christ's death and about his resurrection, we want to make sure that we understand exactly who he proclaims himself to be. We want to know what sort of king this is who entered Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. So today, as we're studying this passage, here's what we're going to see. Three characteristics of Christ's kingship that are declared by his triumphal entry. So three characteristics of Christ's kingship that are declared by his triumphal entry. This passage is going to tell us who our king is, and we'll be able to rejoice in our king as we study this. And the first one of these is found in verses 1 to 5, and this is that the king will be a rescuer. He will rescue. So, we read in chapter 16, remember that, that text right after Peter pronounces Christ as the Messiah, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. So he begins this journey from the north, from Caesarea Philippi, and he heads toward Jerusalem in the south, and he's going to fulfill his mission. But look with me briefly back in chapter 20 at verse 17. Right before he gets there, look what he tells his disciples for the third time. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He will be raised on the third day. So if you're reading through Matthew's gospel, straight through, maybe for the first time, and you're taking note of how Christ is moving geographically, you get to this text, and Jerusalem has sort of an ominous feel to it. I mean, this this Messiah, this king who has done so much good is starting to tell his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they are going to kill me when I get to Jerusalem. And so with that background in mind, you get to chapter 21 and verse 1. And it says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Page, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples and he continues the story there. Of course, you guys, have, you, you've been so well taught for so many years and I'm, I'm so thankful for the instruction that you've received over the years, you know that this chapter takes place during Passion Week, the beginning of Passion Week, and you know that this is the few days leading up to the Passover and that the Passover would be celebrated later in this week. And so Jesus wasn't the only person who was coming up to Jerusalem during this time. In his disciples, there were many, many other pilgrims who were heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But one of the things you need to understand that puts this story in context is that when pilgrims went to Jerusalem, they walked to Jerusalem. Obviously, they didn't take a motorized carriage. Most of them didn't take horses or any other type of animal. They walked up to Jerusalem. That was the practice. Jesus and his disciples had been journeying from the north all the way down. They're here here at Bethpage, just a couple of miles from the city. And so... For Jesus to stop walking at this point and to do something else, there would have had to have been a pretty specific reason for him to do something different, for any pilgrim to do something different as they approached the city. Well, apparently, as you read this passage, Jesus does have a reason to do something different. Let's read all the way, verse 1 to verse 3. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives... Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, apparently this had been prearranged and obviously as you're reading this, this is intentional. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he has a specific reason for this. Why does he want a donkey to come to him so that he can ride the donkey into the city? Well, Matthew explains in verses 4 and 5. This took place, a little narrator's uh, notes here for you. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Christ specifically seeks out this donkey in order to fulfill this prophecy from the Old Testament. The prophecy was that Jerusalem, that Israel's king would enter the city on a donkey. That's what Jesus is going to do here. Now... When you think about Christ as the king, which we typically do, and you think about this text from the Old Testament, we'll get to where it's from in a minute there, but when you think about the kingship of Christ, you need to understand that this is not something that just sort of developed in the pages of Matthew. Oh, Jesus is the king. That's a neat idea. (laughs) That's not how it works here. This idea of Christ being the king or of a coming king was expected all the way back in the Old Testament. And there are so many texts that we could go to this morning. But I just want to show you a few of these expectations so that when Matthew quotes this passage, you can understand something that has been building for thousands of years. And so when Jesus gets on this donkey as a king was expected to do and comes into the city, this is a dramatic seen and he's doing something very specific and intentional one passage that is fascinating early on in scripture genesis 17 verse 16 god is talking about abram and sarah and he says this i will bless her and moreover i will give you a son by her i will bless her and she shall become nations kings of peoples shall come from her and then if you trace abraham's line down through jacob you get to where Jacob is ready to pass off the scene and he blesses his sons and he blesses one of his sons, specifically his son Judah. And here's what he says to Judah in Genesis 49, verses eight through 10. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Very kingly language there. And then listen to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so the expectation is that a king will come kings will come through Judah and one king specifically who will exceed all the other kings. Of course, the line continues through Israel. They enter the promised land and then a descendant of Judah, David, comes to the throne and God makes some very specific promises to David in Second Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then he continues on. You can read this later. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes these promises to David. But then your good Old Testament students remember what happens to David's sons. Solomon holds the kingdom together, but then the kingdom splits. And then David's sons, the kings of Israel and Judah, go into idol worship and sin. And eventually, David's descendants are removed from the throne. They're no more. And the whole nation is sent into exile. And at that point, that's where the prophets come into Israel's history. And the prophets talk about the sins of the nation and of the kings But one of the things the prophets do, and I hope this is helpful as you read through them, is they say, look, Israel has sinned, the kings have sinned, they have messed up, but there's a king who is coming, who's going to set things right one day. And that expectation is built into the prophets, and they continually expect and hope and long for that day. And so that expectation from the prophets is what brings us to this passage in Matthew 21. And this is where Matthew quotes a couple of Old Testament passages. And he's looking forward. or He's he's saying these expectations are being fulfilled now in this one who is riding this donkey into the city. Now, one of the things about an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament is when you read it, they're not just ripping that verse out of context. So you have cross-references in your Bible. You need to go back and look at the whole passage that they're pulling from. That's a good Bible study method for you when you're reading and studying at home. Go back, use the cross-reference, look at the whole passage in the Old Testament and understand what they're trying to say and why the New Testament authors quote it. But in Matthew 21, look down here at verse 5. There's two Old Testament passages being quoted here, and both are important. The first phrase, say to the daughter of Zion, is from Isaiah 62 on the screen here. Look at this. He, He pulls that one phrase out, but look at the whole context and what this is expecting. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. And then here's that quote, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Matthew has that in mind when he Talks about Jesus this way. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. So this text from Isaiah predicts this wonderful, bountiful future for Israel and really for all the nations And Matthew is saying, this is happening now. This is beginning now through this one coming into Jerusalem. And the rest of this passage here, you probably have a cross reference, is from Zechariah chapter 9. Now, you know the part that he quotes, but I want you to turn back there, if you can find Zechariah in a reasonable amount of time. Turn back to Zechariah 9, and I'll read this to you. If you can't, don't worry about it. That's fine. But listen to this whole passage that he quotes here this is not just haphazard that he's grabbing this text listen to the the glory that is being promised here verse 9 rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout aloud o daughter of jerusalem behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey obviously that's the part that's quoted but look how he continues here I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. He's promising peace to Israel here, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth, and you and for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I've bent Judah as my bow. I've made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. The promise is, look, when this king arrives, it's going to begin something that is going to set in motion Israel's redemption and all the peoples of the earth are one day going to dwell in peace and safety because of this king who is coming to you. Matthew quotes these two passages here because he's saying, this is who that is. Those promises are fulfilled in him and he's going to bring that about. Now, I want you to notice specifically what Matthew says As he quotes this here, behold, in verse 5, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, here's the thing. The Jews were expecting this king to come in and to just immediately take the throne and to reign and be a military hero. But instead, Jesus is almost the exact opposite of that. He comes in on a donkey. He comes in humbly. And he comes in as one whose goal is given to us in Matthew 20 and verse 28, just a page back. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One author described the way Jesus entered like this. He said, the Son of David who enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey and on a colt, The foal of a donkey is not a conquering military hero, but a lowly, gentle figure who is reshaping Israel's messianic hope in a way that could hardly have been anticipated, a way indeed that will lead to the cross. That's what I want you to understand about our king. This is a king who humbly gives his life as a ransom for many, this is a king who rescues. His people. That's what he does. That's who he is. He rescues his people through his own sacrificial death. And if you think back over the scriptures, this is so characteristic of our God, isn't it? This is what he does. When you think back of Israel, Israel, time and again, they fail, they sin, they mess up. But what does God do? He rescues. That's who he is. He comes and he gets them out of a sticky situation. That's exactly who he is. And that's exactly what he does consistently. He rescues them from oppression, from sin and from trouble. God delights in saving people. Psalm 46, you know this Psalm well. I'm sure it's been a blessing to many of you over the years. God is our refuge and strength, a very present Help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. I have no doubt that some of you feel like you're in this passage this morning, that the waters are swelling and foaming, and you are struggling, you're in despair typical in our lives. Sometimes when that happens, I know I feel like I am just going to pester God if I go to him over and over again. Lord, I need you today. I need you this week and I feel like I'm just over the top in pestering him about that. But let's let's reshape our perception of our God this morning as we look at our king. Let the word of God renew How do you see God responding to those requests for help? Those cries for help. How does God respond? He delights in saving his people. He delights in rescuing us. He delights and finds joy in rescuing the downcast and the despairing. That's who he is. That's what he does. And so as king... As King Jesus comes into the city, as we see who he is through this, he has all the resources that we need and that he needs to rescue his people. Because he's the king, because he's the rescuer, that leads us to our second characteristic this morning. This is in verses 6 through 11. Because he's a rescuer, the king deserves worship. He deserves it. The king deserves worship in verses 6 through 11. Flip back over to Matthew 21 if you're not there. You can see in verses 6 through 8 that this incredible scene develops. Look at this with me. The disciples went, did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So all the pilgrims, I told you earlier, are walking into the city. And when Jesus gets on this donkey and starts to ride to Jerusalem, and there's this crowd around him, obviously this creates a scene. And so the people respond to that scene by essentially creating this royal march into the city. They put their cloaks down, they throw palm branches down. This is exactly what would happen when a Victorious king enters into a city, takes rulership over that city. Very dramatic. But you can see in verse 9 that they don't just lay their cloaks down and their palm branches down. Instead, they start proclaiming something. Look at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, if you're attentive Bible reader this morning, or if you're checking your cross references, because now you feel like you have to do that. This phrase that they say also comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Psalm 118. And so, again, you can see this is full of Old Testament quotes and allusions to try to tell you this is who we've been expecting. He's here. So we need to go back and just real quickly look at this passage and read through a bit of it so we can understand what's going on here. Turn back to Psalm 118. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you, the Psalms, obviously you know, are authored mainly by David. King David wrote many, many of the Psalms. Not all of them, but many of them he wrote. And the Psalms are typically understood as Songs that praise God for his works, for who he is. And that's absolutely true. But in addition to praising God for who he is, did you know that many of the Psalms, especially as you get further in the book, maybe past Psalm 107, many of those Psalms start to praise God out of an expectation that a king like David is going to come. So if you need some proof of this, go read Psalm 110. Later this afternoon and then see how much that's used in the New Testament to talk about Christ. But that's the way the Psalms work as you get later on. And so this Psalm, Psalm 118, this Psalm pictures, listen, this is amazing. This Psalm pictures a king coming into Jerusalem and a bunch of pilgrims around this king and welcoming this king into the city of Jerusalem. It's a royal Psalm. And so look at verse 19. The king says to the people and to the city, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The king requests entrance to the city and then the the king and the people go back and forth and you get down to verse 26 and the people respond to the king as he's coming into the city and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, obviously, that's the portion that's quoted in Matthew 21 as Jesus enters Jerusalem. But flip back over to Matthew 21, giving your fingers a workout this morning. Matthew 21, look what the people add to that Old Testament text when they proclaim Jesus as the coming king. Look at this, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They understand Jesus to be some sort of a king in the line of David. They may not be thinking, they're probably not thinking specifically as a suffering Messiah. They're expecting a political or a military leader, but their reaction to him is is appropriate for who he is. What do they do? They praise him. They honor him. And in fact, you can see later on in Matthew 21, look down at verse 15, this gets Jesus in a bit of trouble with the religious leaders because of the way that they honor and praise him. Look at verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, here's what they cried out Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? I mean, they they know what the people are saying about Jesus. They understand the worship that they're giving him, and Jesus doesn't rebuke the people. In fact, he turns in verse 16 and says, Yes, (laughs) have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. He doesn't rebuke them. He actually says, yeah, this is fitting for who I am. I am to receive praise. Worship and adoration. And this is no less true for us today. The difference though is, is now we have the full story, don't we? Now we know what happens at the end of this week. Now we understand that he gave his life as a sacrifice for us and rose victorious over the grave. And so we have the complete story to be able to worship our king With, And one of the things about worship that you see here that I think fits the whole tenor of Scripture is that worship is a response. It's always a response to some truth. These people saw Jesus on the donkey. They saw what was happening and they responded to that. We respond to revelation of of Christ and of God. We don't try to conjure up emotions on our own just have some sort of an emotional experience, we respond to revelation of God, to truth about him. One author said this about worship. He said, an attitude of worship comes upon us when we begin to see God as he is, then respond to his presence. That's when worship happens. It's when truth is clear. We understand that truth. We understand who Christ is. And then we respond to that truth. And that response gets every part of our being. It gets our emotions. It gets our brains, our thinking. It gets our wills, everything. That's exactly what we're trying to do this morning, isn't it? We're trying to get a crystal clear picture of our king as he comes into the city. We want to see him as he is so that we can respond in worship to him. Those outside the city, at least to some level, understood and got it. Not all the details, but they responded appropriately. But notice how those in the city responded. Look at verse 10 in Matthew 21. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. And that's not a good stirring up there. (laughs) The whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So a crowd goes with Jesus toward the city, and then another crowd receives him in the city, but that crowd is stirred up and frustrated, and they proclaim him a prophet from Nazareth. Probably political nuisance is what they're thinking. going to get us in trouble with the Roman authorities, not worthy of kingly praise is how they respond to him. But we respond as we know who he is in adoration and worship. And that brings us to our last characteristic this morning. This is in verses 12 to 14. We've seen that the king will rescue. The king deserves our worship and praise. And then lastly, this might be my favorite one, verse three: The king brings healing verses 12 through 14. I want you to notice where Jesus goes when he gets into the city. Look at this verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Why would he approach the temple first? Why why does Matthew present him as going directly to the temple? Well, you all know this, but the temple was the key place of worship for the Jews and particularly for Jewish religion at this time. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle plays a significant role in the life of Israel. And then the temple plays a significant role in the life of Israel. Those were places where the people could approach God, sacrifice to him, receive forgiveness for their sins and worship him at those places. Because that's where his presence dwell. But when Jesus comes into the temple, things are quite different. When he approaches the temple during this day, it's no longer what it was intended to be. It's no longer a place of welcome where people can approach God's presence and worship him. And so as the king comes into his city, he is going to confront the unrighteousness that is there in his house, and he's going to deal with it. That's what he does in verse 12. And then you can see what he says in verse 13. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. They had perverted the worship of Yahweh in the temple and they'd made it something entirely different. Once again, I hope you realize that The words that Jesus says here, he doesn't just make those up on the spot or pull them out of air. He's using Old Testament quotations to make his point here. And one of the passages that he quotes here is in Jeremiah chapter 7. You can flip back there. I think we have time to look at a little bit of it. Jeremiah chapter 7. And in Jeremiah 7, God, Yahweh, is confronting, get this, the religious leaders of the day, during jeremiah's day and he's confronting them because they are misusing the temple and so look what he says to them look at verse three thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel amend your ways and your deeds and i will let you dwell in this place do not trust in these deceptive words this is the temple of the lord the temple of the lord the temple of the lord what were they doing they were thinking of the temple like a good luck charm if we just are able to approach the temple, we'll be good. God will accept us. But God says to them, no way. You have to amend your ways. You have to walk in righteousness. You have to use the temple as it was intended to be used. And that's not what they were doing. He he continues in verse 5. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. And we don't have time, but you can continue to read later today this whole text all the way down to verse 17 or verse 15. And he describes what they were doing in the temple, how they were sinning, how they were misusing it. And Jesus quotes that in Matthew 21 and says, you guys are doing the exact same thing but in matthew 21 jesus also quotes another passage and this one's beautiful isaiah 56 verses 6 to 8 it'll be on the screen here this is what isaiah promises will happen one day this is the expectation and the foreigners who join themselves to the lord to minister to him to love the name of the lord and to be his servants everyone who keeps the sabbath and does not profane it And holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's where Jesus pulls that from. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You see that? All peoples. Everyone. It's a welcoming place to come into the presence of God. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And so Jesus quotes this after cleansing the temple because he's saying, look, it's not about this physical building. This is not where you're going to meet God's presence any longer. What happened when Christ died? The veil of the temple was ripped in two and access to God was given. It was no longer about the Holy of Holies. Now we have access to God through Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone of a new temple that is being built. Ephesians chapter 2 describes this to us. I love this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Where does God dwell on earth now? Us. We are his body. We are the temple. His spirit works within us now. Now, this welcoming environment that Christ wants to create, we'll finish up here, but look down at verse 14, and I think we see a very vivid example of Christ welcoming the nations in. At first glance, this verse doesn't seem to fit, right? We're talking about Jesus cleansing the temple, and then you get to verse 14, and look, look what he says. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And then he goes right back to talking about the religious leaders. And so you read this verse here, and it's like, what is Matthew doing? Why does he just offhandedly mention that Jesus healed some blind and lame people in the temple? Well, I think Matthew is doing something very specific here. And I want to spend our last couple of minutes examining this together, all right? Turn in your Bibles back to Second Samuel 5. I know it seems like an odd place to go, second Samuel five. I think Matthew intends us to look back here now what 's happening in this passage as you're as you're getting into it getting over there this morning? Ironically enough, what 's happening here is King David is about to enter Jerusalem for the first time, okay so King David is going into the city of Jerusalem, but David has to take Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Look at verse 6, 2 Samuel 5, 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. And look what they say to David, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. And so they're mocking him. They're saying, look, we could send out blind and lame people, and they would be able to defeat you and your men. So David turns around and says something back to them. Continue reading here. Verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and look what David says in response. Verse 8. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. Well, what's David doing here? I think he's mocking the Jebusites back and calling them lame and blind. Now, is that an honoring way to handle yourself as a leader? Probably not. But the point is, look at the result of what happens. Continue on in verse 8. Who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, the, the narrator, the, the author says gives us a little hint as to what happened as a result of this. Therefore, it is said the blind and the lame shall not come into this house or the house. And so he's saying this sort of became a thing in Jerusalem after this. It's not that no blind and lame people were ever allowed in the city, but they were kind of looked down on after this in the city of Jerusalem and then eventually in the temple because of what David says here. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's pretty awful, David. How could you act like that? It's probably not something that David intended to have happen, but it's something that happened as a result of this exchange with the people, with the Jebusites here. So why in the world are we looking at this? <laughs> what are we hoping to accomplish here? Well, if you go back to Matthew 21 and verse 14, we'll finish up with this. Matthew 21 and verse 14 I think this is exactly why Matthew inserts this here, because he's just talked about Christ welcoming the nations in a house of prayer for all peoples. And then he inserts this here because he wants you to understand David was a good King, but David certainly made some mistakes and these people probably weren't welcome under David, but under Christ's kingdom, These people are not only welcome here. His kingdom is characterized by complete and total healing and restoration. That's how he acts as king. David was great. Jesus is better. David's kingdom was temporal. Christ's kingdom is eternal. David may have won a military victory. But Christ welcomes in those who are broken And he speaks a word and they are healed and restored. He's able to make the blind see and the lame walk again. That's the type of king that we have. He rescues, he deserves worship, and he brings grace and healing with his presence. That is the king we have. And that king has arrived. So you and I really have no option but to recognize who he is as king and to worship him and to rejoice in his grace and his kindness so as you enter into passion week and you consider christ's death and resurrection do that this coming week worship and honor him for who he is let's pray father what an amazing picture your word gives of your son jesus christ Lord Jesus, we are, we are marvelous. We, are, we, we marvel at who you are. We marvel at your grace to us, at your wisdom. We marvel at how you fulfilled all the expectations of the Old Testament absolutely perfectly. We marvel at the healing that you bring as your kingdom moves forward. Spiritual healing and then one day physical restoration for those who are broken, who are blind, who are lame. I pray this week that you would help this picture of Christ to come back up into our minds, help us to consider this, to think about it, and help us to respond to the revelation that we've received from your word with worship, adoration, and praise. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the king. In Christ's name we pray.